0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Truth Nation podcast. I am 30% of your hosting team today. The other 70% is that man, the chief, Mark Garrett. Mark, how you doing?
1: Uh, I'm doing great, Bill. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited yeah, about
0: um, this. Hey, this is something I've wanted to do with you for a while. Uh, tremendous amount of respect for you. Knew you when you were the chief here in California for the for the Highway Patrol. Uh You emailed me a couple nights ago and you asked me to watch a documentary called The Fall of Minneapolis. And when you sent me that email, I thought, "Okay, this is going to be about uh, the events after the death of George Floyd. What happened to this city? How law enforcement changed, how crime changed in the city after that period in May 2020. Uh, That's not what the movie was about. When I started watching it and I saw it go back to the actual events uh, of May twenty fifth, twenty twenty, I thought, "Oh boy, this is going to be some right wing uh, propaganda film, and it's going to change. It's going to try to change uh, how what it's going to try to change the facts of what happened that day." Um, that wasn't the case either. That wasn't the case either. But before we get into the weeds about this documentary, the events uh, surrounding the death of George Floyd, the trial of Derek Chauvin, and, and what that meant for law enforcement as a whole. Can you talk to me about where you were May 25th, 2020, what your assignment was, and what were your first thoughts when you heard about this incident and perhaps saw the, uh, the initial video of it? Well, as you said,
1: I was chief of, of the, the largest division of the California Highway Patrol, uh, in May of uh, 2020. And you know that division's Los Angeles County, got about 13 14 million people in that county. And here I am watching this video. And look, I grew up in Southeast Los Angeles, did all my patrol time, supervisory management time in Los Angeles County with the CHP. I've been through any number, I mean untold number of of riots um in that time. And for all different political and other reasons, but so I'm looking at this now as a member of top management from the fourth largest law enforcement law enforcement agency in the country, and not wondering if, but I'm wondering when the poop is going to hit the fan. That's those are my first thoughts because I have to think that way as a manager of sixteen hundred people, you know, about twelve, thirteen hundred officers. I'm thinking about. What's going to happen when, when it goes south, when the protests start? How's it going to affect the people of this county? How's it going to affect my officers, my civilians that that, that I'm responsible for? So that was a global, uh, my global perspective and response. Now, getting a little more deep in the weeds, I'm looking at this this video. And my first thought from a tactical point of view is what... I'm seeing in the video it's really nothing that I was ever taught to the California Highway Patrol when it comes to enforcement contact. And again, those were my initial thoughts because I saw what everyone else in the world saw. It looked to me like, like Derek Chauvin, this officer was kneeling right on George Floyd's neck, that he had him pinned down for you know almost 10 minutes. It was completely you know cold-hearted. It was dismissive of uh, you know his duty to the public, to to this suspect, all the things that that were um, that were marketed, so to speak. And, and in my opinion, it was marketed because, as we're going to get into this later on, um, what we saw initially is not the whole story. So those were my initial; those were my two initial thoughts. How's it going to impact the people here in Los Angeles County, my people specifically, and the CHP? And then why is it going to go sideways? Because what I'm seeing didn't look like anything that I had learned. And I initially thought, man, this is completely improper.
0: Uh, so what I saw, let, let me hit you with a hard question right out of the gate then. Uh, initially, did you think it was bad policing? Did you think it was murder when you saw that first video? Uh, what, what were your thoughts around the actual death itself? Mm -hmm. Well, my initial thoughts, uh, my initial
1: thought was it was bad policing. That was my initial thought. Because, again, we are seeing what we know now is just a sliver of all the video and other evidence that surrounds this this incident. So my initial thought, this is bad policing,
0: period. Um, No, 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 no. I I was going to say I agree with you 100 percent. And uh, see, you were talking about you were concerned with. were concerned with the people of LA, what was going to happen in LA, were things going to pop off in LA. I saw it and I immediately thought about the profession. I thought, man, another black eye on the profession, an untrained cop, um, poor, poor tactics. Again, something that I was never trained in. I had people reaching out to me, asking me, hey, is that a particular move, something you train. And I would say knee on neck, no, that knee on throat, that's not something that we train. Um, interestingly, I I did think within a couple of days, seeing that video and over over and over, I said, hey, the police killed this guy. I thought that the that that law enforcement killed him. Um, in my mind, no question about it, I was so disgusted by what I saw that I never even followed up. When body camera footage became available, I didn't watch it. I didn't seek it out. I said, I don't need to be reminded of how uh, horrendous this was, of how poor this represented our profession, etc. So I kind of just put it behind me and, and tried to move on.
1: Well, Bill, you bring up an excellent point with the impact on on law enforcement, the profession, because that's certainly it. Probably did come after uh, my, my my initial observation how it's going to affect the the CHP strategically, and uh, and then this is bad policing, but also the reflection on law enforcement absolutely. As a matter of fact, I talked about this. Uh, early on, with, with when we started this podcast, I talked about it. And I said, I'm kind of quoting myself, but I think that Derek Chauvin got exactly what he deserved. But just like you're saying, the initial impression that I have, the initial information that was shared over and over and over, it was so damning to Chauvin, I kind of closed my mind as well. In other words, we got to move on because this is cut and dry, it's clear, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't do my due diligence and really dig deep, as we're going to talk about today. Had I done that, my initial uh, assessment would have been, and it is now, different. Number two, I didn't say number one, but (laughs) number two, you asked me about do I think it was murder. I never thought that it was murder. And simply because being a law enforcement it, it, for thirty years and knowing, at least in California, what the definition of murder is—that's intention, intentional, intentional—it's it's, it's forethought—that I didn't think that 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 officer engaged in an intentional act with the with with the intent of taking the life. So I never thought it was murder. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking more, you know, manslaughter, mm-hmm. things like this, maybe a second degree, but certainly not 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 murder.
0: Yeah. So. So the documentary opens up, Mark, and one of the first things, the Fall of Minneapolis documentary, it opens up. One of the first things they talk about is the criminal history of George Floyd. What I didn't like about it is they don't really, it's not clear to me, Mark, if those charges are, are they convictions? When, when they're uh, mentioning the, the, the times he encountered law enforcement in the past, was he convicted of those crimes? Was it just police reports taken, charges never filed, or, or what happened in a lot of those cases? I also feel like to some extent, uh, the criminal history isn't really relevant, isn't really relevant to the events of that day. Uh, would you agree with that or would you disagree with that?
1: Well, I agree in the sense that it, it's not relevant when it comes to the state of mind of, of the officer Chauvin and the other three officers um, at the time they encountered George Floyd, because they don't have at that point, any knowledge of his criminal history. Their actions have to be based on the circumstances they're involved in at that time. So in that sense, no. However, in, what we learn later on, and we're going to, I know we're going to get into this, so I'm really excited about getting into it, we, le- we learn about toxicology, we learn about health of, of George Floyd, which is not criminal history, but the toxicology part certainly is, because it certainly shows what level of responsibility George Floyd had in bringing himself to the situation, and he did, this is one hundred percent on him that he ended up in this enforcement contact. Nobody else is in the world. Only George Floyd, and it also indicates that the continuous use of certain substances culminated in what we saw that day, um, with 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 the loss of his life. So it wasn't a one off type type of thing. So I think those things are important, but to the state of the mind of the officers, no, it's it's not right. relevant at all. In so.
0: My For those that don't know, the the initial law enforcement contact with George Floyd, it began because uh, the allegation was that he tried to pass a $20, a counterfeit $20 bill in a convenience store. Police were called. They arrive at the convenience store, talk to the clerk. Uh, The clerk takes them outside and points to a Mercedes SUV parked across the street and I guess identifies that as the car that uh, that the gentleman got in. Officer Lane, I believe it was, is the one that made the uh, the initial contact. Uh, one thing that, and see, hey, my background's different than yours, Mark. Working at DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, uh, we are we generally know a lot about the people we're about to encounter. We are able to do our, our homework and we're able to kind of dictate the, the terms of the encounter most of the time. Very different for uniform law enforcement. And oftentimes over my career, when people said, hey, DEA, that's got to be tremendously dangerous. I would say, no, definitely not as dangerous as someone working in a patrol car uh, encountering someone who they know absolutely nothing about and standing there at the window of the car and having to make split second decisions, uh, having to digest uh, a lot of information real quickly and make very good split second decisions. So talk to me about when the initial contact was made. Mr. Floyd was, in my opinion, non-compliant. I think they told him uh, multiple times, maybe five to 10 times, eight times to put his hands on the steering wheel. What is that like and what is the training like uh, when you when an officer encounters someone who's not complying in the driver's side of the car?
1: Well, your, your assessment is 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 excellent. Uh, look about the differences and, and what the DEA does, even though you guys have time to do your research, develop a profile and things like that. I think in other words on on average you're dealing with a higher level so to speak of criminal behavior because this is what you're going after with with trafficking sales and cartels things like this but you're right when you make the number of enforcement contacts that a street cop a patrol officer makes um, one of the problems is and people have heard this a lot that you know there is no routine stops that, that officers make routine stops all day long, all week long, all year long. And that's true. But here's the danger. When officers start m- making every stop a routine stop in their mind, this is when tragedy can happen. This is when your tactics can be forgotten because you get lulled into a false sense of security. It's a little difference here with with George Floyd because this is somewhere in between that every day traffic stop enforcement contact that officer makes and then going to the DEA where you guys have a ton of time to build a profile mm-hmm. This is somewhere in the middle because they actually got a call of someone who was allegedly engaged in the commission of a felony at least here in, mm-hmm. in California I think and of course it's a federal crimes counterfeiting so we know it's a felony that so someone's involved in in um, a felony so, you're going to have a higher sense of, uh, of surroundings, circumstances, uh, tactics, and, and, and teamwork in a situation like this because the initial crime has already been made clear to you. When you approach this vehicle, in other words, he was identified by the witness, that's him, blah, blah, So, you have, I think, there's yes. three people in the car, if I remember correctly. Um, and so, right there, we have multiple subjects in a vehicle and the the alleged crime is of a felonious nature you damn well better step it up we would consider this in the high patrol a a, a, a high risk sorry high risk contact because it's
0: related to a felony or an alleged felony okay
1: yes an alleged felony and and this is in other words this is going to put you in a different state of mind and the, to your point about him not complying and watching this, you know, from being a, a former cop, former street cop, it is excruciating to watch this where the officers are getting simple, clear and achievable commands. Put your hands on the steering wheel. Put your hands on the steering wheel and this mm-hmm. man is not complying. The flags do not get any redder than this. Sorry. That's all there is to it. The couple that with the multiple individuals in the vehicle. And again, an officer better assume, better put him himself in a state of mind that if the driver's not complying, it's very possible that the people in the car are of the same mindset, are of the same attitude. Again, this is not going to hurt anybody or using excessive force. But you better be on guard to what might happen, might happen. So this is where these officers were when you're not able to get compliance with a very, very simple command.
0: Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that the female passenger, who I think was in the backseat, actually told Floyd, stop resisting or something to that effect, uh, because she could see that he was escalating the situation. I think that's fair to say. Would, would you agree with that? By not complying, but by not complying, right, t- there is some amount of escalation of anxiety uh, going on there.
1: Well, not only was he not complying, but I think any officer who's been in the field, you know, any number of months at that point, or had good training in their respective academy, clearly had reason to believe that either. George Floyd was suffering from some type of an emotional, psychological, mental uh, disorder and or Mm -hmm. intoxication of a controlled substance or drug. Because he was speaking in, I will say unintelligible, but certainly irrational um, uh, terms, words, phrases. He wasn't responding to, directly to the officers. The officer would give a command and he would talk about, my mom just died. I just had COVID or I got COVID. Things like this that were, they were not direct responses. Even if he had said, why do I have to put my hands in the wheel? What have I done wrong, officer? Why are you, why are you stopping me? Things like this. They would still not be compliant, but at least it would be rational. There would be a, a conversation happening back and forth this wasn't happening. He was responding in irrational, non sequitur terms, which again, adds another level of, of concern and awareness it should with... with
0: so train-offs. The one thing that I did not notice in the video until they went back and slowed it down, uh, there was a point when Officer Lane, after telling Floyd several times, put your hands on the steering wheel, Floyd had his left hand on the steering wheel, could not see his right hand, and uh Officer Lane has his gun drawn and you can actually see his gun in the frame of the video. And Floyd opens his mouth. Did you see something in his mouth th- the first uh the first time you saw that, or did, did it take the video being slowed down? Yep.
1: It took yep. the video being slowed down. Yep. I did not see it. Did not see it. matter of fact, you know, I went back after you know, the frames are presented to us Like, oh my God, it's right there. So I went back and watched it at full speed looking forward. And even now knowing yep. it's there, it's still hard to
0: yep. see. Now hard. there was, uh, there was, I don't know if there was speculation or mention that it was pills. It didn't, uh, to me, I can tell you from my experience, it appeared to be uh, a baggie of dope. It looks like a white small baggie. Um, who knows? I don't know what it was, uh, I suppose it could have been pills, it could have been something else, but it definitely looked like something white in his mouth. So uh, that's interesting because, hey, we have I think you've seen it, I've seen it. We've all seen people try to hide drugs in their mouth during an arrest situation. And the first thing I thought of at that time was, okay, is this why he was not being compliant and putting his hands on the steering wheel? Was he trying to hide evidence? Was he taking something out of a pocket, out of somewhere in the car, and did he put it in his mouth? And was he trying to hide it in his mouth to keep the officers uh, from finding it? And later on, when they searched the uh, Mercedes, they did find pills in the Mercedes that I think tested positive for meth and fentanyl. So it's there's no question there were drugs in the car. Uh, the the You know, the the, the only thing that's up for some amount of debate is did Floyd conceal or or at least try to conceal some of those drugs in his mouth? Was he hiding drugs in his mouth? Uh, Did you have a different thought on that? Or or what was your what was your thought when you saw that that object in his mouth?
1: Well, first of all, I think (laughs) I think any reasonable person in or outside of law enforcement would would um, would Mm -hmm. bet it wasn't bubblegum. In his mouth, um, and and I, yeah, I want to mm-hmm. be fair. I want to be objective here as, as as possible, because you and I didn't see that in his mouth um, initially at the full speed of the video. The officers probably didn't either. Um, so that specific element of it for me from my point of view is isn't really germane to how things unfolded later on but in a broader sense this goes back to what we were discussing earlier you asked me about the the <clears throat> compliance issue when someone doesn't comply an officer based on training and again a seasoned veteran experience is going to is going to get into the mode that there is a reason or there are reasons that this person is not mm-hmm. complying with civil commands, whether it's they're concealing something in their mouth. They have a firearm between the center council and the seat. Any any number of possibilities exist when someone doesn't comply. It turns out that it looks like one of the reasons he wasn't compliant is because he's probably concealing drugs. But those things are all ancillary in regards to the moment in time where the officer has to make a decision. His decisions are based on this person's not complying. Why he's not complying, we're going to try to figure out later on. My first goal is because this person is indicating to me, he is not going to go along with the program. I damn well better do everything I can to make sure I go home safe tonight to my family. So all those other things are are for an investigation later on. Right now, person not complying, we have to we have to step it up here with the. You know, when doctor. they were
0: trying to put him uh, in the in the police car, in the squad car, initially, um, one of the things he said that for me connected back to that what I'm going to say that is that dope in his mouth was he said when I start breathing, it's going to go off on me. Uh, and I couldn't help but think when I heard that, did he swallow something and he's worried about uh, accelerating his uh, metabolism? He's going to start basically arguing, breathing heavy or whatever. That drug is going to hit him faster. I don't know if... If that's what he was talking about, it's kind of a strange statement. But a lot of the statements he made are strange. But to me, that did connect back to what mm-hmm. I saw in his mouth. And I thought, man, did he actually swallow that baggie that was in his mouth? And did that later play a major role in what happened?
1: Yeah. Well, I think that it did. And I and we'll get into that because you, you really are the expert on some of the stuff that we'll we'll talk about here regarding um, control substances. But uh, when you watch this documentary by, by Liz Collin, I, just, I it just, it's just a very, very well done documentary. And then we should yep. link to it here someplace um, for the viewers. We find out this is not the first time that George Floyd had a substance in his Almost an identical
0: contact, really, except he was a passenger in a car in, in 2019, a year earlier. Very similar contact. Um, very similar kind of non sequitur statements made. Uh, I think at that time he actually, well, they knew he had dope in his mouth and they were giving him commands to spit it out. That was probably the only difference. And I think based on that, they called EMS right away. Uh, in this case, there still wasn't that much of a delay before calling EMS. I mean, there, uh, really, there was no reason to call EMS Until, in my opinion, until uh, they tried to get him in the car and he started complaining about not being able to breathe. And when they took him out and put him on the ground, they called pretty quickly. Uh, thats I don't know if I'm getting ahead too much, but that's when... so, So he kicked... As they're trying to put him in the car, Mark, he kicks one of the officers. He does not want to go in the car when they searched the squad car later, they actually found more pills with his DNA and his saliva in the car. W- when I hear that his saliva yes. is on the pills, what am I thinking? I'm thinking he spit them out. I'm thinking he's, he, he, he had them in his mouth and he spit them out. Did he spit them all out? I have no idea. Um, I'm sure that you had, you used to search patrol cars before each shift so that if there were drugs found in a car, uh, you could associate them with a suspect. In this case, there's DNA, so, so that's even irrelevant. But the point of that is mm-hmm. it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon, you know this, I know this, for a suspect to try to get rid of evidence in the uh, in the back of a police car. Um, the pat-down search, it's not going to catch everything every time. You know, there's some creative hiding places there, uh, and that's likely what happened this time. But But Floyd was not... Again, not compliant, not going in the police car. Uh, They had him then, when I first heard about this case, I thought, why would they put him in the car and then take him out of the car? That didn't make any sense to me. Uh, It was almost like the intimation was he was in the car and they took him out of the car to basically abuse him or, or to inflict some kind of pain on him. That wasn't the case. He never, really, he, he never really got in the car, and uh, they made the decision to put him on the ground. They called for something called the MRT, maximum restraint technique, and that is actually uh, a big point of this documentary, and rightly so. Uh, and I don't know if they ended up using a hobble on him. Did they ever actually put it on him, Mark, that you saw you know what, that's a great
1: question. And I don't I don't remember if if they hobbled him or not. However, mm-hmm. I, I want to go back you you touch on something. And again, I yeah, I have my magical notes here because the again, we encourage everybody to watch this documentary. But I did put some bullet points down here, some high points, in, in my opinion, from from a law enforcement perspective, going back to EMS, and remember, I used to work in marketing. You know, by the media of these these so called facts, and they are so called facts when you go back three and a half years right. when this stuff first broke. The, the you talked about elected. I mean, talk about elected officials, so called community leaders, uh, um, on and on and on and on. Advocacy groups about you, you picked the number eight forty seven nine twenty six. You know how many minutes they were kneeling on George Floyd's neck. Now again, I'm I'm going back and using the terminology, the words, the claims that were that were put out there in social media, mainstream media, for months. And even, by the way, even still today, you know, the I can't breathe thing. So what do we hear? They're kneeling on his neck for, you know, I think one I quoted here, nine nine minutes and twenty-nine seconds. And I think Nancy Pelosi, 847, and so forth and so on. All these claims. Not one time in those initial uh, uh, news articles and addresses, did anybody tell us that those officers called fire and paramedics 30 seconds after they had him on the ground. They called for fire and paramedics 30 seconds after they had him on the ground. Now, going back a year before that, the enforcement contact you're referring to, Bill, in 2019, that officer also called EMS as soon as he was made aware that, or he had reason to believe that George Floyd had narcotics in his mouth. He also called Probably the only reason, maybe it's the only reason George Floyd lasted another year, because they were able to take care of him and render the proper aid, knowing what the potential, you know, health concerns were with controlled substances and what they might be. But fast forwarding now to 2020, May 2020, these officers called right away. There was no almost 10 minute delay of them calling. Derek Shawman didn't kneel on uh, on on George Floyd's neck for 10 minutes, and then they called EMS. We can get deep in the weeds about where the communication. Breakdown was, but the communication breakdown was with dispatch. The officers called immediately and saying that they need medical assistance. And they said code three. Now in California, at least the CHP, when we call, it's called, you know, rolling 4142 means fire and paramedics 4142. We don't have to say code three because EMS always responds code three, and at least in LA County, I think anywhere in California, it's an automatic code three. But in Minneapolis, they said roll EMS code three. Hurry your butt up. So those are other rumors and myths about this that if they haven't been dispelled completely, they they really should be dispelled. The officers were not dismissive. They weren't negligent in in that regard whatsoever. The other
0: thing that's important to mention, Mark, is the the, uh, MRT policy of the Minneapolis Police Department, the maximum restraint technique policy. What does it call for? It calls for EMS to be contacted if that technique is used. They used the technique, and they contacted EMS right away, uh, contemporaneously with when they used the technique, to be honest. I mean, within 30 seconds of when they made the decision to use that technique, they called EMS and, and asked EMS to respond.
1: They follow up policy to the letter. Now, to that, Bill, Yeah, I know you watched this, and obviously— did did you have any thoughts about, in other words, part of Chauvin's defense, yep. we're getting a little ahead here with the trial, was that he was following policy, that this is what I was taught to do. And, you know, I have it here, I have the timestamps in the video, everybody needs to watch the entire thing, but the chief of police, the Minneapolis Police Department, he sat on the stand and said that he didn't recognize anything that, that Derek Chauvin was doing out there that his officers Mm -hmm. were never trained like this. He'd never seen it. It was not authorized. So forth and so on. Then the uh, inspector Mm -hmm. Blackwell, I'm not sure Mm -hmm. what that rank equates to, you know, probably like an assistant chief or whatever, but certainly high ranking at least top management inspector Blackwell testified Chauvin's actions were not an approved technique. So you have the chief, the inspector saying he was completely out of policy. Right. We don't know where this came from. It's nothing I recognize, so forth and so on. Then we see Derek Chauvin's mom being interviewed by Liz Collin, the producer of this of this documentary. She literally holds mm-hmm. up the policy with the photographs. And when you juxtapose the the diagram in the manual to Derek Chauvin's knee on mm-hmm. George Floyd's shoulder blade, mm-hmm. they look identical. The policy is clearly there and the written policy is also pointed out in, in, the,
0: um, in the document. Yes. Now, do you have any comments so, on yeah, I that do. and the words? I, I do, so, so he, here's what I think about that. I don't know the history of this chief, Mark. I don't know if he came from inside the department or he came from the outside, right? The reality is, the unfortunate reality is, you come from outside the department and you take a role as a chief and you're there for a few years. And again, I don't know if that's the case with this man. He might not know what what they're trained because he never went through. uh, It's possible if he's not from that department, he never went through Minneapolis police training. That's number one issue. Number two, I think he said that because when you read the written policy, right, the maximum restraint technique policy, it does not address the body positioning of the officers, how the officers should be positioned to physically restrain the person on the ground. The photograph tells a story, right? The photograph definitely tells a story, or in the case of Chalvin's mother's uh, bringing in his training manuals, it was almost like a photograph that was turned into a uh, a pencil illustration or something, right? But yes, but there's no uh, text description in the policy of using that knee on shoulder, knee on neck, whatever it was. There's no uh, text description of that in the policy, and I think that could be. I I think that could be one of the issues, and I think that's a significant thing. And that and Mark, that may be why the judge made the decision not to let uh those photographs in which i think is a bad decision uh and since you brought it up there was also the powerpoint training slides did you you saw the powerpoint train? the powerpoint training slides also show a very clear picture of an officer using the maximum restraint technique and his knee is positioned almost exactly where chauvin's Knee was in the picture. Now, I'm going to draw some very subtle differences, Mark, and this goes to really more my training in jujitsu than uh, than any police training I've got. I think you and I probably both agree, but that's a subject for another tra- time, that, that law enforcement agencies don't train enough. Mm-hmm. If you, I'm going to ask you now after we do this to go back and look at those pictures again. Look at the training PowerPoint picture. Look at the illustration in the uh, printed manual and look at the officer, the ball of the foot of the officer that's controlling the person. So you have two points of contact. You, You have your knee, which is gonna be on the suspect and you have your ball of the foot, which is gonna be on the ground. You can regulate how much weight you put on the subject by taking weight off the ball of your foot and leaning forward and putting it on the suspect or by leaning back and putting the weight uh, on your foot, and then really your knee is almost just resting there. In the pictures, I saw uh, a demonstration where most of the weight was on the ball of the foot, and that's not a very that doesn't that's not a very uncomfortable position for the person on the bottom. When I saw Chauvin do the technique, I saw most of the weight on the suspect. Now. You and I both know in training, uh, you're doing the technique to another police officer. You're, you're not really, you know, you're, you're not going to go 100 uh, percent with a technique because you, it's training. Right. And uh, you're trying to be respectful to learning the technique, not, not necessarily having someone that's fully noncompliant or whatever. But there is a position in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu called knee on belly. Uh, it can be it can look the same. But it can be incredibly uncomfortable. The way it's uncomfortable is all the weight's on the knee. The way it's not uncomfortable is all the weight is on the foot. Now, that's a very subtle distinction. I don't even know that most officers who were trained in that technique would even realize that. But uh, that's the only the only difference in the pictures that I saw and the famous Exhibit 17, the still shot from the cell phone video. Mm-hmm. That's the only difference I saw in in uh, what was trained and what was actually done. So at worst, how, uh, what I would say is that officer was actually trained in that technique. Maybe he didn't do the best job of applying it, but he was definitely trained in that technique. And I am <clears throat> I'm really flabbergasted to see how that is not brought up at trial.
1: Well, of course, I, I couldn't agree with you more and, and you, you put, you really put a fine edge on some of these points, Bill. I really appreciate that. And you make an excellent point about, well, if the, if the chief is asked, you know, were you trained or something whatever he says, I don't recognize this because <clears throat> he, you know, he, he came into the agency really? as a manager, as a chief, things like that. And he personally never went through it. In other words, that could be absolutely factual, absolutely factual. However, if you're the chief of police, Minneapolis the Police Department, and you know, you know without any doubt that the perception across the nation and the world is that Derek Chauvin kneeled on George Floyd's neck and killed him, murdered him. This is the perception by the majority of people probably. And he did this through a method that was never authorized by the Minneapolis Police Department. If you know that going into trial, as the leader of the organization, and you have not done enough research to look at training records to find out if this officer had ever received this training, you are negligent in leadership. You are negligent because everybody who knows me and everybody listening to this knows I have a big mouth and I like to get as much truth out there as humanly possible. And if I had been in that position, thank God I wasn't, I would never want to be in that position. But if I had to be, I said, I never received this training. I never went through it. You could even say we don't train it anymore, but I looked at the manuals and yes, he received this training. And like to your point, he didn't do it properly, but he did apply generally the technique that he was trained on. That would have been a complete mm-hmm. and honest answer. And there can be tons of dishonesty and in an incomplete yep. answer. You know that from being the DA, you know that. And sometimes an incomplete answer can be more deceitful, more misleading than a complete lie. It's just true, leaving out particular facts. So that... Whatever is the case, whether he grew up there as an, a, a law enforcement officer, came up the ranks, or came anew, I don't think his answer went to uh, what was truthful in, in a complete sense. I don't don't at all. However, and not however, but in addition to that, then his answer was was um, you, you had another manager, high ranking official, the inspector mm-hmm. come in and say the same thing. So right. you have two people. You have two people that, in my opinion, are plain stupid. Are you telling me that two people of this rank don't know that at some point Derek Chauvin received the training? Absolutely unbelievable. And like you said, the judge who didn't allow this in as evidence, the training manual, to me is absolutely unforgivable. You put this information out there. That's why we have 12 jurors of your peers to let them decide. If this information is relevant or not i mean i know a judge has to introduce or allow or disallow certain i totally get that but my god if the fact that derek chauvin did receive this training is deemed inadmissible by the judge then anything could be and i mean this is the whole crux of the matter did he violate policy which resulted in the criminal death right of an individual. This is the this right. is the crux of the matter here. So, I know I get tense about this. But my god, yeah. this is deceitful to me. And I don't know where it is. No, and, and uh, I, I agree with you
0: when when I saw the training manual and I saw the PowerPoint slide that showed that exact position, I said how does this not come in? You know, th- there's no doubt in my mind that that was the technique that they were trained on. There's no doubt in my mind from seeing the PowerPoint slide and seeing the the actual training manual that the officer's mom had, they were uh, trained on it. Like I said, did he do the best job? I mean, who knows? Who, Who knows? But it's beyond my comprehension how that doesn't come in at trial. I guess I would have to go back and look at the judge's ruling to see specifically and that's probably out there somewhere. Shame on me for not having already done it. That's out there somewhere. Uh, that, and that's something that is, is just crazy. It's just crazy.
1: It is crazy. I, I have to admit, I, I'm really anxious here. Well, two things, like you said, I, I too, shouldn't kind of know where this is in the justice system. I know I know, Chauvin's had some things that have been, um, you know, his appeals have not been... Um, uh, heard or accepted things like this but I'm kind of curious where some of these other you know rulings are going to end up and, and maybe they have already happened and we just don't know about it but I am really anxious to hear your take on on the yeah. toxicology Ooh. and health part of this because yeah this is huge and and I have some notes here but you're the expert in this bill and I want to you know we, we know for a fact that he had multiple substances yes. on board. We know this. And I wanna get your take on on what effect this did play physiologically yeah. based on your training and what effect that maybe it should have played. So first off, and- I mean,
0: what qualifies me to, to look at a tox report, Mark? I'm not a doctor, I'm not a medical examiner, I'm not a, a forensic pathologist. At DEA, we had a team called the Overdose Justice Task Force. And every single day we worked to bring charges against people who distributed fentanyl that led to a death. One of the key pieces in establishing someone dies from fentanyl is the toxicology report. So I would say over the past four years, that team's probably looked at 400 overdose deaths in and around uh, Los Angeles reviewed a ton of toxicology reports. I've reviewed a ton of toxicology reports. I've spoken with prosecutors, uh, agents and officers who are doing the investigations, and even medical examiners about toxicology and what it means when proving uh, a fentanyl-caused death. There's a couple things about this toxicology that troubled me, and this is where my opinion changed drastically. I had no idea that uh, Floyd had, uh, on toxicology, his blood serum level, 11 nanograms per milliliter of fentanyl in his bloodstream. Um, is that a lot? Yes, that's a lot. So so let me talk about a couple things here uh, to kind of establish that. We've charged people So we've had victims with 11 nanograms per milliliter fentanyl in their system who've died. Right. Victims of fentanyl poisoning. We've actually charged people who distributed the drugs to them to murdering them for murdering them. So what that means is. uh, That a medical examiner said that 11 nanograms per milliliter was the cause of death in those cases. And here's here's I got a couple examples from old fentanyl cases from around the country that I have. And it's other trial testimony just so people can get an idea of what amount of fentanyl is potentially deadly. And then I'll go into some of the factors that uh, that kind of can mitigate those amounts. Uh, Here's a question. And now this is the gentleman's name is uh, Gary Collins, chief medical examiner. Uh, Department of Safety and Homeland Security, the state of Delaware. He was asked this question. Understanding that every person is different, do you have an opinion as to a level that you have seen which would normally cause a person to overdose? If so, what is that opinion? Answer, in the vast majority of cases, any fentanyl concentration greater than three nanograms a milliliter in an individual with no other anatomic uh, physical or traumatic injury, natural disease, or infectious etiology to cause death. The death will be attributed to the fentanyl detected. Let's go back to the uh, to the autopsy on this case. I have here somewhere a quote from Dr. Baker. Uh, Here's the initial report that Dr. Baker did. Autopsy revealed no physical evidence. This isn't me saying this. This is the guy who did the autopsy. Autopsy revealed no physical evidence suggesting that Mr. Floyd died of asphyxiation. Mr. Floyd did not exhibit signs of pedacheic, help me out with that, damage to airways or thyroid brain bleeding, bone injuries, or internal bruising. There was bruising on left shoulder and face. Pre-existing health conditions, heavy heart, some coronary artery disease, at least one artery was 75% blocked. Now here's a statement that the medical examiner made before getting the toxicology. He said the ultimate cause of death may prove to be a uh, multifactorial diagnosis based on what stimulants were in his system, causing his heart to work harder, the exhaustion caused by an encounter with police, et cetera. After getting the toxicology, he said, this is a quote, the level of fentanyl was, quote, pretty high. He said that level can cause pulmonary edema. The lungs were two to three times the normal weight at autopsy. Uh, That is a fatal level of fentanyl under normal circumstances. So what people have to understand is that when people die of a fentanyl overdose, uh, their central nervous system—let's just let's describe it like this: their central nervous system becomes so relaxed it just shuts down. So their lungs fill up with fluid, and you can almost think of it like they're drowning. They're unable to breathe. Hence, probably the statements, "I can't breathe," "I can't breathe." His lungs were starting to fill up with fluid. So I was looking for. You know, unfortunately, when something like this happens, sometimes science will change to fit the facts, right? So I went back looking for uh, overdoses that happened prior to May 2020, and there was an incident. I I used to track uh, what we call overdose clusters around the country. So anywhere where there was a cluster of overdoses, look at it just to see what was happening in that city, uh, who was being harmed how those drugs were getting into the city, et cetera. So on June 23rd, 2016, there was an incident in New Haven, Connecticut, where uh, a dozen people overdosed on fentanyl. And here's what's, here's what's super interesting. Two of those uh, Two of those people died, right? The first patient who died, his fentanyl concentration 11 nanograms a milliliter. The second person who died, the fentanyl concentration, 13 nanograms per milliliter. Fentanyl was ruled the cause of death in those two cases. And guess who created this document I'm reading right now? The Centers for Disease Control. The Centers for Disease Control put out something called the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report And this is one I had grabbed from 2016 when this event in New Haven happened. So that amount of fentanyl is deadly. We charge people for drug distribution resulting in death when we see that amount of fentanyl in a toxicology. Uh, How that didn't become, and again, you know, Mark, you and I weren't in the courtroom. But how that does not become, how you don't have medical experts come in and talk about that uh, is beyond me. Really, the way drug-caused deaths are looked at, fentanyl deaths are looked at, there's something called a but-for cause of death. And what that means is, but for the fentanyl, this individual would be alive. Now, based on my experience, when I looked at that toxicology, and I saw uh, what what happened on the street there. My opinion is, but for the fentanyl, George Floyd would still be alive. Uh, I really don't have a doubt in it. There were other drugs in his system. The ones that I thought were uh, interesting were norfentanyl. Norfentanyl is a metabolite of fentanyl, so to me that indicates that his body was processing the drug. So it had been in his system for a little while, at least. Uh, There was morphine in his urine, but not in his blood. Uh, Another opiate drug, by the way. So you have a synergistic effect. Anytime you're, you're, if you're taking heroin and fentanyl, it's two drugs that do the same thing. The effects are going to be magnified. When we see a toxicology with morphine in the urine, but not in the blood, that is generally indicative of heroin use prior, maybe a day prior, two days prior. The body is still metabolizing some of the heroin and uh, it's being passed as morphine in the urine or detected as morphine metabolites in the urine. Um, That toxicology, when I saw that, that was probably the most troubling thing of this whole documentary, how you could have someone with uh, 11 grams per milliliter of fentanyl in their system. Just with my experience in looking at hundreds of these death cases that we've charged, how someone could have that level of uh, fentanyl in their blood and that not be a but-for cause of death. I'm perplexed by that, Mark.
1: Well, <clears throat> Bill, you may have said, you know, you've, you, you presented the caveat that you're not an expert in this, you're not an expert in that, you know, you're not a physician, you're not a medical examiner. But I don't think that anybody could have explained it better than you just did. I really don't. Um, there's nothing more for me to say on that to- topic because I, I, I think what you said is completely correct. I don't know how this was not a factor
0: in this trial. Yeah, and, and either. No, I was just going to say. And then the, go the ahead. Go ahead. the you know at some point, uh, and, and this may be, I think, related to what you alluded to earlier: ongoing uh, litigation, either an appeal or some sort of civil suit. But a woman named Amy uh, Swayze Tamburino, I think she's an assistant to Doctor Baker who did the autopsy. She was deposed just in the past couple months, Mark, and here's here's what she said. She said the doc, and she's talking about after the doctor did the initial autopsy, after Dr. Baker did the initial autopsy, he called her. And here's what, according to her, here's what he told her. The doctor called me later in the day that Tuesday, and he told me there were no medical findings that show any injury uh, on the vital structures of Mr. Floyd's neck. There were no medical indications of asphyxia or strangulation. And then she added that the doctor said to her, quote, Amy, what happens when the actual evidence doesn't match up with the public narrative that everyone has already decided on? This is the kind of case that ends careers. I mean, that's what she testified. That's what she said in a deposition. And I've talked to you about the level of fentanyl in, in the blood and how that alarms me. Uh, Dr. Baker said in the initial autopsy that there's no physical evidence suggesting asphyxiation or anything else. You know, how, how do we arrive at a, how do we arrive at a murder charge here, Mark?
1: Well, I think uh, the person you were just quoting summed it up it, and to me, again, looking back now, having all this, this evidence in front of us, to me this simply looks like a political trial now look as a result of lack of leadership as a result of anybody the judge the chief of police anybody being able to stand up and say as bad as it looks here are the facts as simple as that I think that the narrative that was pushed immediately was just too powerful for a number of people to overcome. In other words, through again, lack of, Mm -hmm. of courage. Mm -hmm. I don't know how else to say it. it is that we have to tell the truth and look, going back, we talked about this at the beginning of this episode about, uh, you know, where you and I were when this happened and in our perspective, things like this. One of the things I looked at that was available at the time, you know, Derek Chauvin's uh, uh, employment history, his, his disciplinary history came out. And there were a lot of disciplinary, disciplinary actions uh, taken against him and a lot of complaints. There were some sustained complaints. I believe, I believe, I could be wrong. I think some were, for, were force related. And I said, you know what, this family is gonna win hands down mm-hmm. on the civil case immediately, not because of what happened on that May Day in 2020, but because of, in my opinion, based on the information at the time, was negligent retention. In other words, this guy right. probably should have been fired for a number of transgressions over the years. That's why they're gonna, you know, lose. Now, again, I still don't know now how accurate you know that information that is available uh, regarding his employment history is. But there's so many layers to this, so many layers. But the bottom line is, Bill, in my humble opinion, is that there was no way, given the political circumstances, the political pressures, that Derek Chauvin was ever going to walk out of that courtroom a free man. It wasn't going to happen. And again, I'm not saying that he's 100% um, uh, Mm -hmm. clean in all this. But did he murder George Floyd? I say absolutely not. If George Floyd had been sitting on that curb, instead of lying in the street next to that patrol car, if he had been sitting there, he would have been dead in 30 or 40 or or 60 minutes anyway, based on the information Mm -hmm. we have that you so beautifully articulated regarding toxicology. I do want to touch on... The, the larger ramifications, or some of the other some of the other yeah. issues here, at least one of them. Out of this, we had, and again, here here we have the George Floyd riots of twenty twenty, right in Los Angeles County. Those riots were initiated with an attack on two of my officers on yep. the Ten Freeway, right, right outside my building, Los Angeles, right outside exactly. And I know where your office is, right outside your building. And and boom. And now we have a couple of dozen people killed in riots through 2020, you know, summer and things like this. And and what we have really come to fruition wasn't the start of, of BLM, but man, they blossomed into the, into the incredibly corrupt organization they are today um, during the 2020 George Floyd riots. So we have all of this racial aspect. Oh, this was a hate crime and Black Lives Matter and cops are systemically racist and blah, blah. By the way, disregarding the fact that two of the four officers involved were minorities, sure. one's black, one Asians, but yep. still, this is a racial attack and on and on. All this crap that came out of the George Floyd riots and probably as a result of George Floyd literally killing himself and not the actions of any police officers in Minneapolis. One thing I want to read to you, just just very briefly, about the the hate crime aspect of this, the alleged mm-hmm. hate crime by so many people. This is Keith Ellison, who's still the Attorney General of, of Minnesota, but this is from April twenty fifth of two thousand twenty one. So this is about a year after after the incident. So Keith Ellison, and this is a, a quote from the publication The Hill, in an interview with sixty Minutes that aired on Sunday. Again, this is April of 2021, aired on Sunday, CBS's Scott Pelley asked Ellison if he thought Floyd's death was a hate crime. After a brief pause, Ellison responded, it wasn't. I wouldn't call it that because hate crimes are crimes where there's an explicit motive and of bias, Ellison said. We don't have any evidence that Derek Chauvin factored in George Floyd's race as he did what he did. Now, Ellison went on to say that Floyd was a victim, here we go, of systemic racism, not individual. There's no evidence that there was individual racism. So Keith Ellison, on one hand, says, and this is important, I think, to the whole general narrative of this thing, how, how lack of leadership and lack of courage and lack of, lack of honesty can completely derail a society, on un- morris from mm-hmm. principles. Ellison said, and I agree with him, there was nothing to indicate that any officer there was engaged in racism, racial profiling, uh, hate crime motiv- motivation, not one of the officers, black, Asian, or white. But he couldn't resist, he could not resist saying that this is a result of systemic racism. Tell you right now, Keith Ellison had, and he admitted, no evidence for individual racism, and he has no evidence of quote unquote systemic racism, racism either. If he had, he would have documented in this interview, but he didn't. He had to make some amends with the factions that hate law enforcement, mm-hmm. hate the rule of law, hate self responsibility. Hate individual rights, and I'm on a bandwagon a soapbox right now because his anger meets no end. George Floyd was not killed by a white racist. George Floyd was killed by George Floyd. That is that is the fact. And so I, I wanted to put that in there, just from yep. at least from my point of view, as a ribbon on on this thing, and maybe. Get your perspective No, I, on, I agree with now. you 100%.
0: Um, <laughs> I mean, we can go on now and talk about the aftermath, the third precinct. Uh, why, again, I, I mean, it's, it's it's a question of leadership. And we all, we all hope that if we were in that position, we would make the right decision. But when the mayor says, and, and the mayor has come out and said, I gave the order to evacuate the third precinct. The, the mayor also said we, as if he's a police officer, we will continue patrolling the third precinct. The mayor also said uh our, our work will continue. You know why why is the mayor making public safety decisions, Mark? Like where where what Well, Well, I I mean, where is? hey, I get it. He's I guess the chief works for the mayor. And I don't know how it works in Minneapolis. You know, the city council is technically the boss or whatever. Mm -hmm. But at some point. If the mayor gives the order, we're going to evacuate the third precinct. I think the chief of police has an obligation to say, mayor, from a public safety perspective, we can't do that. Let's talk about what other options we have.
1: Yes. And uh, I'm glad you're, you're, you're hitting on this, the aftermath, because there really are two parts of the story, and there are two parts of this documentary. And the effect it had on, on not only local law enforcement, but the law enforcement profession in general is really immeasurable. Matter of fact, I, <laughs> let me correct myself. We aren't mm-hmm. able to measure a lot of this. There are some clear metrics on the on the effect that law enforcement clear metrics, undeniable metrics. Going back to the mayor, boy, Bill, when when I watched him making those statements about we are going to continue and we are this mm-hmm. and that, I mean, how dare you? How my thought exactly? You dare you put yourself in the boots of these men and women? who you are now subjecting to unnecessary, unreasonable, and improper levels of danger. And then you have the gall to say that we are going to No. You say, listen, I'm the head of this city. I've been in contact with the chief of police. And we're going to do X, Y, and Z in coordination with our law enforcement professionals. This is what a leader does. But what did he do? He orders the evacuation of the third precinct and things like this. My God, what signal did that send to these people who are now burning down their own community? The signal was, we've won. They
0: can't stop us. It goes to what I've heard you say a lot, Mark. The signal was, there's going to be no accountability right now. Uh, Go out and do as you will in the streets of our city.
1: Yes, and of course, I remember. I any of us watching this stuff, and again, of course, I'm you know was was as chief in my department. We're all was my my staff, my bosses in Sacramento. <laughs> we're all watching this, wondering what impact this is going to have on our ability now to hold the line to protect the people that we're sworn to protect when. When the the genesis law enforcement of this Minneapolis Police Department just literally folds mm-hmm. and runs, and and again, I'm not talking about the men and women; those men and women are on the front lines out there doing the job that most people in this country don't want to do, would never do. I'm talking about their leaders just rolling over and quitting. That that impact was at the time it was immeasurable. Now looking back, we can see, and it's still happening now. the the effects is having these repercussions are rippling Mm -hmm. throughout the country. And it gave the, it gave the, the, the moral green light to so many other chiefs of police to make these ridiculous concessions. And then of course, this is where the whole defund the police narrative started. And maybe it didn't start there on that day. Um, and I've talked about mm-hmm. this on, on, on my podcast. T- I talked about the genesis of the defund movement. We all start, think it started with George Floyd. It didn't start there. So when I say start there, it got this massive boost. But The genesis, genesis of defund goes way, 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 way back. 30, 40, 50, 60 years. But this was such a tangible, public, and powerful expression of defund the police. And man... These cowards with four Mm -hmm. and five stars and colonel's bars and blah, blah across the country, they took it as a green light to say, you know what, I I, I agree, I agree, agree. And they just stripped themselves of any responsibility to the public
0: to whom they were
1: sworn to serve and protect.
0: You know, when back in the summer of 2020, when I heard the calls to defund the police, I knew what our agency does when uh, funding is cut and it's probably, I suspect the same thing your agency used to do when funding was cut. The first thing that an agency does is they stop hiring. Why do they, why do they stop hiring? Because it's an easy way to just uh, reduce a financial obligation immediately. You can say, hey, we're not hiring now, we're gonna save money on salary. Here's what happens and I actually went back and LAPD is the example I use because they're very, they're very transparent organization. Uh, I looked at the academy classes they were putting through uh, in 2020. Mark, they were 86% non-white male, extremely diverse. So LAPD was hiring officers who look like the community, who uh, are part of the community, who can interact with the community when people call for defunding the police, that stops, that hiring stops. So so I would argue that the first thing to suffer is, uh, is the diversification of our police force and the first thing to suffer is having a police force that looks like and understands and interacts with uh, our community. It, it was just so frustrating to hear that back then and understand what the ramifications of that we're going to be. And then, I mean, look at what happened with the Minneapolis police department, where they went from 892 officers in may, 2020, uh, this past October, 513. So yeah, that's almost, that's what, I don't know what that is. 40%. They lost 40% of their police force. Why? Why did they lose it? Because there is no, faith in leadership it comes down to leadership the workforce said these people uh are not supporting us they're not going to back us they're not going to enable us to do our jobs they're not going to uh they're not going to i don't know what facilitate they're not going to facilitate our success we're out of here and that had national ramifications mark recruiting has suffered in all the whole law enforcement profession since then it's something that it's going to take years and years to to recover from
1: you're 100 percent right um again i had those numbers there because they're the ones you provided with minneapolis uh and we can talk about any any number of look i think nypd is maybe the starkest example i think they're down I, again i could be wrong. I didn't look this up. But just from conversation maybe down five or 6000 officers from 2020. I mean, Mm -hmm. again, they're the largest agency in the country, but they've certainly lost more than any other agency because of that as well. I mean, listen, I have good acquaintances Mm -hmm. with NYPD. And not only have they lost this swath of officers who are maybe close to retirement or decided, you know what, we're getting the hell out of the state. I'm going to work for some small agency mm-hmm. in Tennessee or Florida or you name it, Texas, things like this, but the officers who are left, and this is not unique to NYPD, but uh, any number of agencies, they're working unbelievable amounts of overtime mm-hmm. to try to fill the gaps, which does not bode well exactly. for safety, policing effectiveness. Uh, listen, accuracy and reports no, no, not not intentional reality uh, inaccuracy but in other words the reality of, of exhaustion things like these these are all and it all comes down to eventually not being able to serve and protect or protect and serve if you're LAPD in other words whatever slogan the the citizens the members of our society that were sworn in law enforcement to protect when you think about some of the 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 most um negatively effective agencies across the country often they are in these quote-unquote communities of color so the people look i just talked i just talked to a great friend of mine who's a very high-ranking official in the city of beverly hills california we were talking yesterday mm-hmm. just yet or two days ago and i asked him i asked him about the staffing goes, oh my god he goes mark we're doing great he goes we have the money and so our agency is staffed. We are now at like ninety-eight percent of our staffing. We have pretty much everybody we can use. This yeah. should, this should tell you something. In other words, the the communities that can afford to initiate these large yeah. pay increases, benefit packages, things like this, and they are in traditionally low crime areas anyway, where cops are not okay. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna become the next Derek Chauvin because I'm having to roll out to these fellings over and over and over and over, things like this, these quite more quiet communities, they were able to take care of themselves. But the people who need the protection the most, the high crime areas, they are the ones Correct. suffering the most because of this nonsense of defund. It's a great point, Mark. Disgusting.
0: And, uh, you know, it, it, so to talk about Beverly Hills and a lot of cities like Beverly Hills, they are able to collect private money to supplement their police department. I don't know if people realize that. A lot of the cutting edge things that Beverly Hills does, and that is an incredible, uh, some of the, you walk into uh, their command center there and it's like you're watching an episode of NCIS. Um, the, The technology that they use in that city is phenomenal. A lot of that comes from private funding, right? So when funding is cut, Across all departments, like you said, they can still survive. They can still provide a high level of service and recruit. Some communities can't. Some communities can't, and that's where uh, it makes no sense to me, because I feel like, I feel like those are the communities that are being that are being hurt the most.
1: They are, they are, and this is it's it's one of my passions. This particular topic again, this all goes back you. Go back three and a half years to George Floyd. And now we are seeing the fruits of this foolishness. And in in California, again, I've talked about it on my show about the California High Patrol, which is also tremendously understaffed now, historically, being ordered by Governor Newsom to go into these cities whose own agencies are being diminished. Are being decimated, uh, staffing-wise, going in and providing law enforcement services, especially up in the up in the Bay Area, all kinds of cities up there, in Oakland and San Francisco, and so forth and so on. And, so, ladies and gentlemen, do you realize? Do you realize that we lose more people in traffic mm-hmm. accidents in this country than murders and things like this? Forty thousand a year. The primary role of the California Highway Patrol is is, is traffic. Mm-hmm. Now, the only role. We do everything from expired registration mm-hmm. to murder and to for- everything, you, you name it. But the primary mission is traffic enforcement. And if we are not able, I say we, formally we, if the California Highway Patrol is not able to go out there and do as m- much traffic enforcement, traffic accident prevention, DUI arrest, intoxication arrest, mm-hmm. more people are going to die. And I'll tell you right now, I don't care if your loved one is shot or if your loved one is killed at an intersection on a county road. They're as dead as dead. You can't, you squeeze a balloon here, it's going to blow up someplace else. So moving these, these resources around, say to California, is a shell game. It's just to look good here for a few weeks and look good there for a few weeks, and it's all disgusting. The problem is, is people like Gavin Newsom, that have supported, and by the way, I was careful about this. I really couldn't find a quote where Gavin Newsom ever defended the defund, or ever supported mm-hmm. the defund movement, to mm-hmm. be honest, to be totally fair to him. But he certainly never spoke up against it. He never called it ridiculous like you and I know right. it is, and so many other people know that it is. And so it's it's his ilk that have got, gotten us to where we are. I wish it never happened. Like he said, Bill, it's going to take years and years to dig ourselves out of this hole. And I wish people could just show a little bit, a little inkling of courage and say, you know what? Eh, I don't even like cops, but this guy died of a drug overdose, not because Derek Chauvin was yeah. on his shoulder.
0: Enough said. I think Enough that's uh, probably a, a a spot to end it, Mark. Um, enlightening. Watch the documentary. It changed my opinion of the uh, case substantially. It the events of that day and, and the subsequent in the subsequent two or three days changed our profession, Mark. And uh, I appreciate you for being one of the leaders and stepping up and and using your voice to try to change it back and, uh, and and make the profession better. So thanks. Thanks for doing that. Bill,
1: thank you for having me. It's been it's been a lot of fun. And I'm looking forward to the next time. So God bless you for, with your new show. and Take care. Uh, and here we go.